So Luke starts the second chapter with a bang. And for most of us, it's not experience like that. But these words, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. It localizes what is happening at a real place, in a real context, a real historical context, and one that is tremendously loaded with all kinds of tension because this is in the days of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is not a small insignificant figure. When he was born, a decree went out to all the Roman Empire declaring good news and evangelion that the Savior of the world had been born. And although there were kind of three co-rulers of Rome vying for power, Augustus gained control of the empire. And he, and he reigns from about 25 years before the birth of Jesus to about 15 years after. And he is harsh and he is unrelenting, both with his political opponents and even within his own household. He's a master administrator though, and he actually restores order to the Roman Empire. Now, a lot of that order comes at the tip of the spear, so to speak, but the empire had been involved in all kinds of skirmishes and civil wars and uprisings for a number of decades, and he's responsible for quelling that and bringing peace to the empire. But because Rome thought of their empire as essentially the world, Augustus was one who was hailed as the bringer of the great Roman peace, the Pax Romana. Sometimes it was even used interchangeably with Augustus's peace. That peace lasted for 250 years. When he was Caesar, the top of the Roman power hierarchy, Augustus declared his deceased adopted father divine, which made him, by inference, the son of a god. That moniker, the son of God, the bringer of peace, the great savior of the world, that eventually gets minted on coins that get distributed all throughout the empire. Those play into the story where people bring a coin to Jesus and they say, who do we give this coin to? Because this coin tells us who the savior and Lord of the world is. And you can go and look at that story to see how Jesus handles that. Augustus, increasingly, with every decade that this peace is established, he's lauded as Savior and the world's King and the world's rightful Lord. And even in the eastern part of the empire, early on in the first century, there arises what's called the imperial cult that sweeps east to west of the Roman Empire. And that's a cult that integrated the worship of Caesar into the worship of the Roman pantheon. So the worship of Caesar slowly, kind of the, um, the celebration of who Caesar is morphs into worship and a divinization. That means you lift up someone and say, they're actually like a god. They're on a different level to us. So if we know the story about Jesus and we can peek ahead and say, he's going to be talked about as if he's a king. Who's the one born king of the Jews? There is a massive confrontation that this first chapter sets us up for. The kingdom of God is inbreaking, not just this world in the sense that everyone's just kind of living their best life and having a middle class lifestyle and things are kind of neutral. The kingdom of God is inbreaking a world 
in which everyone sort of understands who's in charge. And the world does have a Lord. And the world does have a Savior. And the world does have someone who says, I bring peace. I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And it's in this world a census is taken. And a census in the ancient world is about, uh, obviously, information. And it's about control and financial exploitation. There's a lot that could be said about the burden that was being borne by almost everybody at that time in terms of taxation from Rome, but even more so for Jewish people because Jewish people gave to God according to the Old Testament on top of a taxation burden which was massive. Um, I know we in Canada can sometimes complain about how much we pay in taxes. You go into historical records of how much the average Roman had to uh, give over to the empire and man, you, you will praise God for the Canadian taxation system. It was a a suffocating, strangulating financial burden on people. And this is part of the reason why people were praying and hoping that God's kingdom would come. That God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because down here, we're kind of in this, well, we're told it's a time of great peace and prosperity, but for 99% of the population, it's kind of a hell on earth. It's a very dark time, and doubly so for God's people who are under the boot of this pagan empire. So, verse 3, everyone goes to their own town to register. Joseph goes up from Nazareth in Galilee to Judea in Bethlehem. Can we put the map up, Wendy? Uh, That's a long trek. Nazareth is very north Israel, just underneath the Sea of Galilee. There's the Dead Sea at the bottom. That's about 50 to 65 miles. That's a long trek. He has to go to Bethlehem because he's from the line of David. And he goes there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, this is interesting because Mary does not need to go with Joseph to register. It's only the male of the household that actually has to go. They're the one, the household is counted in terms of the census. It's not required for Mary to go, but Mary does go. And that actually gives us a clue about two things that are likely playing out in this story of Mary and Joseph as, they've, um, as uh, the Christ child has been growing within her womb. The first is that Joseph wants to be there to support Mary. He wants to be there at the birth of her child. And it's soon to happen. So he says, I want her with me. And that's partly because he is a caring, godly husband who is saying, I don't want to miss this. Remember, childbirth in the first century is a very, very dangerous thing for women. Joseph wants Mary to be close. But he also needs to be close with Mary because one of the implications of the text is that he can't leave Mary in Bethlehem because her social support network has faded out and disappeared. Because she's with child before marriage which to us maybe doesn't feel like a large source of shame. But in an honor-shame culture, that's really, really massive. So I think part of the calculus for Joseph is if I'm gone and she gives birth, the village women are not going to rally around her. So we get a peek into the isolation that Joseph and Mary as a couple have to bear even though Mary is carrying the Son of God. 
And that's a really interesting place to pause and just reflect on the fact that, again, serving God is often costly. It can cost us friends. It can cost us relationships. It can cost us status. When we commit ourselves to God, there's going to be certain parts of our life that other people are going to look at and say, wow, that's awesome. I'm, I think that's great. I'm glad you found that spiritual center. There's going to be other things about our lives that people are going to look at and say, eh. And there's going to be a soft, or in some cases, a hard distancing. Because we're going to stick out. We're not going to just fit in to the world around us. And if you think about Mary, who has this Christ child in her, and you would think, wow, she's so blessed. She recognizes she's blessed. And she objectively is. But on the ground level, for months and months and months, her and Joseph just have to deal with things have changed. Friends that were close are now sort of stepping away. Following God is costly. And it will mean that we have to live differently because the life of God is inside us that when it comes to things like how we use our time, how we use our bodies, how we use our sexuality, how we use our power, how we use our where our devotion is focused, that will be at odds with people around us. And again, some people will say like, hey, you do you, that's great. But other people will say, yeah, I'm not, I can't really, I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who's that like Jesus-y, I don't know. Good person, love him, but I'm withdrawing. And when those times happen, remember to be really thankful for the Josephs in your life. Because Joseph bears a heavy burden to walk along with Mary. It would have been way more socially convenient to be like, yeah, I mean, I know what happened, but I want to save face. I want to save face in terms of my status within the community. I'm going to distance myself from Mary. But he comes alongside her and literally walks with her, gets her from where God called her to where God has called her to be. We all need probably one person in our life like that. And I hope you have one. Not, not everyone does, but I hope you have one. For Mary, that was her spouse. For some of us, it won't be our spouse. It'll be a friend. It'll be a mentor. It'll be someone else God brings into our life that will help us stay faithful to what God has called us to. There'll be lots of people around us who will say like, that's awesome, but when the rubber meets the road, they will take a step back. Be aware in your life who is stepping forward or who's staying with you and saying, I'll walk with you. It's a long, awkward journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but I'll, I'll go with you. I'm going to see this through to the end. And even when you have doubts and you're feeling lonely and you're feeling like, am I really doing the right thing? Maybe it would be easier for me to quit my faith or quit this thing I feel like God has put on my heart. The Josephs in our lives are like a rock who say, no, like just Let's get a good night's sleep and let's start again tomorrow. Let's keep moving towards the thing that God has called us to. Verse 6, While they're in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So a manger is a trough out of which the animals were fed. And this is a picture of, this is sort of like the best case scenario of where Jesus was born. This is a relatively poor person's house. It has two levels. The upper level is where um, the family sleeps. The roof is where guests sleep. 
The bottom is where the animals are kept and fed. That's the best case scenario that in a sense, Jesus is ushered into that lower level because the, uh, the upper two levels are full. There's no room at the inn. There's no room. There's no guest rooms, which are the roofs at that time. And the worst case is that he's in probably like a sheep's pen, uh, a little bit on the outskirts of Bethlehem, which would really almost look like a cave. So that's kind of the spectrum of what we're working with in terms of a king is coming to be born. And this is not, you know, we're, we're very far away from like first class, uh, high living, uh, um, a reception of a birthplace, or a reception place for a birth that is befitting uh, a royal entry into the world. Verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And again, try and hold that, that it wasn't like beautiful and awe-inspiring in the, in the heaven's part, and you're like, oh, it's the angels. It is a, it's an apocalyptic, um, arresting, kinetic, over, sensory overload revelation where um, heaven pierces the veil of what to the shepherds is just a normal time, a, nor- a normal day. And they're terrified because there's a glory. And the word there again from Hebrew is kavod and it means weight. There's a, there's a weightiness to the moment that suddenly presses on upon them. The angel says to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. And the angel steals the word that Rome used to celebrate the good news of the birth of Augustus. That word, does, Evangelion, does not have its root in the Bible. It has its root in the political culture of the Roman world. The angel says, I'm bringing good news. I'm bringing an Evangelion. Like actual good news. Not the counterfeit, the real deal. And it's a saving message about how a Savior has come to rescue humanity. And the angel says, this will be good news for all people. Meaning, this is a message not just for Israel, not just for God's people, because that's what God's people were expecting. God's kingdom's going to come. God's going to reward us, ethnically Jewish people, descendants of Abraham. And if you're not ethnically Jewish and haven't converted, you're going to get spiritually nuked. And that's the exciting good news. We get advanced and uplifted. The rest of you get destroyed. But this angel says, no, this is good news for everyone. For all people. All ethnicities. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now notice there are three titles, three designations that get sandwiched together very quickly by this angel. It's a Savior who is the Messiah and Lord. Now that same word Savior is, has a deep history in the Old Testament, but in the last chapter, when Mary was praising God through her song and celebrating His rescue, that's the same word that she used to describe who God is. God is a saving God. God is the Savior. And the term Christ or Messiah, which is the transliteration of Hebrew, means anointed one. 
And again, that is a huge backstory in the Old Testament. There are kings that are anointed and priests that are anointed, specially set apart for God's purposes. But through all those lowercase a anointings, there are these prophecies that one day God is not going to send another anointed one. He's going to send the anointed one. All these other ones are sort of dim hints at a greater anointed one to come. And that's what we're seeing here. This is a Savior who is the anointed one. And then immediately in the Greek, the word is Lord. And it's the only time in all of Scripture and the only time in all of the New Testament where the words um, Christ and Lord are sandwiched together. They're back to back. They're kind of like two sides of the same coin. And in the Septuagint, if you don't know, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, every time God's, um, God's name or reference to God is invoked, it's this word, Kyrios. This is a word that to a Jewish mind immediately was connected to, oh, you're referring to Yahweh. Like not God as like a vague being, but like, God, like Yahweh, the revealed God of the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the Lord. And a Roman, Gentile, non-Jewish believer would think, oh, like the Lord. That's a reference to Caesar. Like Caesar is Lord, the commander of reality. And what we're told here is this child who has been born is Savior and Messiah Lord. And to a Jewish mind, for sure, but you could make the argument even to a pagan Roman mind, you actually could not stack terms together to, um, to lift up someone any more than this. I mean, this is an, you could not describe the child in higher terms. It would be impossible. You are almost literally saying this child is the Savior because He is the Anointed One and He's God. It's become very commonplace to just hand wave the influence uh, of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and diminish Him by saying, well, I, I believe in Jesus. I like a lot of what He says and a lot of what He did. And I think there's kind of fantastical or mythical elements to it. But I can respect Jesus. I kind of put Him on this He's definitely a kind of elevated humanity, a prophet, an elevated consciousness, some kind of special spiritual enlightenment. But they stop short of putting him on his own level. And if there's, I mean, if I was having an honest exchange with someone who was saying like, I know that for you, Jesus is God. Uh, you worship Jesus, Jeff. That's great, you do you, but I just can't get there. This, is, this would be one of the verses I would go to. I would just say, I need you to help me understand how you bypass Luke 2, verse 11, this proclamation. Because this is about as clear as you can get. Right? A few weeks ago, I said, Luke chapter 1, we're told Jesus is a big deal. That is clearly set up in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 2 puts a finer point on that and says, Jesus is not just a big deal, Jesus is unique, he is one of a kind. And as the New Testament unfolds, we're going to find out in a way that we don't understand, but gets affirmed again and again in Scripture, this person is fully human, but also fully divine. Not 50-50. Fully human and fully divine. There has never been someone like this before. There will never be someone like this again. And as his life unfolds, as the testimony of his life and the impact of his life unfolds, 
people begin to say, oh, he's actually the Lord. He's the great king. He is the center of reality. He's the purpose of life. He's Savior, Messiah, and Lord. That's a comprehensive claim. It's supposed to dislodge all of our other pettier things of devotion. We can be devoted to things, but what's our ultimate devotion, right? Because if someone is Savior and Messiah and God, you just reverse engineer the implications of that and say, well, if I'm devoted to anything or anyone above Jesus, my devotion's out of order. Like just objectively, it is. And that's why you have Jesus when he comes on the scene saying things like, oh, like you can't actually love anyone more than me. You're not worthy of me if you love even like father, mother, or sister, brother. I'm actually the Lord. And I'm inviting you to see that and to claim that devotion. Verse 12, the angel continues to the shepherds. This is going to be a sign to you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly there's this great heavenly host appeared you know whatever this rupture of of god's space into our space looked like now it kind of like opens wide and it's you know almost too much to take in and this song erupts of praise glory to god in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests and then i don't know if it happens in a moment or it's a slow fade out but the angels had left the shepherds they've gone into heaven the shepherds say to one another Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. That's the NIV translation. Better translation is probably the nuance of, let us go to Bethlehem and share what has happened, what the Lord has made known to us. And that's a a different slant because what that means is God has made it known to them. There's an interesting uh, dynamic at Christmas that we're called to seek after God seek after the Christ child. But there's also a tension in this text here that's kind of like, you're never going to actually find Jesus. Jesus has to be revealed to you. God has to make Jesus known. That's why one of the prayers that I always pray for myself, for my family members and my friends, for this church, for people in my life who are not Christians, the dominating prayer is, God, would you reveal yourself to them? Reveal yourself. In a way that's meaningful to them, reveal yourself. The incarnation is an apocalypse. When Jesus comes, it's a revealing. And we can't fully understand Christmas unless God sort of helps us to remove the scales from our eyes. It's a new revelation that gives us greater clarity into who God is and who we are and how we're called to live in this world. So the shepherds, verse 16, they hurried off. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread word concerning all that they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed. All the people who heard it secondhand were like, what? What's going on? You're at angels and you found this baby in like a, what, on a lower level with ant. What's going on? This is startling and shocking. And I just want to pause here because I want us to maybe feel the upside down, strange, subversive nature of what God is doing here. God is becoming a human being. He is settling himself into a life where he's going to grow according to our psychological and emotional and physiological developmental cycle. He's going to submit himself to full humanity. 
That's, that's a once in a eternity event. And yet the people that get the headline news are shepherds. These are not even close to the most influential people, right? If God was doing something powerful today, you would imagine he would want to reveal it to the people who have the broadest reach. You'd pick the top Instagram or TikTok influencers and say, okay, I want this to go out. This will have the maximum reach. We'll cover the most amount of ground. He doesn't go, he doesn't reveal himself to a Sadducee or a Pharisee or the Essenes or the Zealots. All of those groups, were, they were influential within Israel. They were the ones devoted to making sure God's kingdom comes. Shepherds just live in their life being faithful. And God reveals this news to them. It's to the first century's minimum wage service workers, the ordinary, those that both Rome and broadly speaking, the religious elite in Israel would have thought were basically invisible. They just weren't on their radar at all. And I think that's a beautiful picture of how the kingdom of God starts. Because we often think, well, if God was really doing something like important, big, it would be noticeable. It would be like, bam, it would be like fireworks of the soul. And here we see God coming into humanity. And the first concentric circle that God gathers around that manger is just what we would consider regular people. Ordinary, no status. No religious clout, uh, no social standing, no money, no power, no influence. God does not transform the world by kind of top-down um, transformational trick, trick, trickle-down transformation, where He redeems and restores at the level of the elites and the powerful, and that kind of just makes its way down. It's actually the opposite. It's bottom-up. He starts with the lowly and the ordinary the humble and the unassuming. And sometimes we think as Christians, as one commentator said, that in order for us to have an impact in the world, we have to harness the forces of earthly power. If we could just have more t uh, Christians in politics, if we, got, if we could have more Christians in Hollywood, if we could have more Christians uh, ruling the nations, then we could like bring the kingdom. Then it would happen. But the Gospel of Luke, this Christmas story, tells us that God has a very different way of conspiring to change the world. It's through the obscure and the ordinary and the poor that God begins and God sustains and does some of His best kingdom work. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And Rick shared with me an article and an insight that he's been thinking through about how the shepherds hear the news of the angels, they go to people, and the people were amazed but Mary treasured and pondered these things. And there's a good devotional reflection there for you to take into Christmas. It's one thing to be amazed, to be startled, to have this amazing, intense religious experience and be like, wow, that's awesome. Or to chase those things. It's quite another to move into the process of discipleship. And discipleship is not about chasing these mountaintop experiences. We can be open to them. But discipleship is about treasuring the things God has taught us, treasuring, gathering them up, and then turning them over in our mind and heart, pondering them. And that's a challenge to me because I'm not good at pondering. I'm not good at slowing down. And I've been trying to do that a lot more in the mornings. Take 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. Worship, pray, journal, ponder. What is God doing in me? What is this text saying to me? 
That's a huge root of discipleship. But we live in an age where we flit from amazing distraction to amazing distraction. And we never take time to ponder. And then you fast forward and we're like, I really feel like something's missing in my relationship with God. It feels very flat. I feel very disconnected. I don't really feel like the life of God is bubbling up in me. There's a great insight here. We have to treasure up the things that God is teaching us and carve out time to ponder them. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Two ways I want us to apply the text to ourselves. The first is to notice that Jesus is a king for everyone. Jesus is a king for everyone. The incarnation, that's the fancy word of God becoming human in Jesus, it shows us that God's desire is not just to reveal Himself, but to do it in a way that is kind and non-threatening and gentle and gets really close to us. And that's where God starts, among ordinary people. And that shows us that God isn't primarily invested in the rich and the powerful and the cultural elites. And we might say, yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. That would not have made sense to anybody in the ancient world. The power structures of this world were thought to more or less mirror the power structure of the gods or the heavenly realms. So it would not have at all been intuitive that the true God, the creator of everyone and everything, was gentle and loving and kind and would actually give preferential treatment to the poor and the disabled and the marginalized and the outcast. That would have been an idea that would have been offensive in a lot of ways to a Roman, for sure. I mean, it would have been laughable. But we see God coming to these shepherds in these really rough conditions. And that's a not-so-subtle communication that God has come not for the elite, not for the religiously uh, uh, the people who can perform religiously the most moral. God has come for the mass of humanity. He's come. He's entered into this world at the very bottom to bring His love and grace to those at the very bottom first. God comes as one of us to offer redemption to every one of us. And that's in sharp contrast to the Caesars of the day, Augustus and Herod, the king of the Jews, who are very much kings for themselves and for their inner circle of power. Jesus comes as a king for everyone. Christmas, and that means Christmas is for you. The incarnation is for you. But I want to make a distinction. Because while Jesus is a king for everyone, Jesus is not the king of everyone. And this is an important distinction. Notice what the angel says in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. You ever notice that the promise of peace and by implication the promise that the incarnation opens up is actually limited in its scope? It's limited. It's limited to those 
on whom His favor rests. And what does that limitation mean? Well, that means that the gifts that Jesus brings, love, peace, hope, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, restoration into right relationship with God, abundant life, begun now, planted in us, nurtured by the Spirit, and then extending on after death, all of those things are not automatically applied to everybody. They're not just like things that happen to us. They are limited to those on whom God's favor rests. And on whom God's favor rests is kind of a, again, long backstory in the Old Testament. It's kind of an idiom. It's a, it's a phrase. You can't even get down to the particulars. It's a, it's a sense in which those who have entrusted themselves to God those who say, I know who the real God is, I'm going to respond to that God. I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to turn from sin. I'm going to turn to God. I'm going to put my faith and trust in God. God's favor rests on those who devote themselves to God in response of His grace and mercy. As one commentator said, Jesus comes for all, but not everyone responds to Jesus and not everyone benefits from His coming. And so I leave you with this question. Have you made Jesus the actual object of your devotion in your life? Is this Savior and this Christ and this Lord, is He at the center of your life? Have you listened to the angel's designation and said, I don't understand it. I don't understand how it all works, but I, I think this is the only person who can save me. And as I study and reflect on his life, as I ponder it, this has to be the Messiah and the Lord. Nothing else makes sense. Has the glory of Jesus' light pierced the darkness of your own soul? Because Jesus comes as a king for everyone, but Jesus is not the king of everyone. And until you've humbled yourself and turned from a life centered on yourself to one centered on Jesus, and again, that might be an overwhelming idea and think, I'm not really sure what that means. You don't have to know everything. No one knows what they're getting into when they get married, but you know enough to take the leap of faith. And until you do that, until you center on Jesus and surrender to Him, ask Him to be your Lord and Savior, Christmas will never be animated with the meaning or the joy or the peace that it could be. Because you can fill your holidays with tinsel and lights and presents and festive music and family and friends and beautiful, genuinely beautiful moments of great community and camaraderie and connection. But all of those things taken together, they actually won't be able to overcompensate for the hollow place in your soul that can only be filled with the one who is called Savior and who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we close in worship, may this text do a work in us. And I'm aware that once we get to this benediction and people leave, we're going to be flooded with all kinds of distractions. But I would pray that you would anchor an idea, an image, a, a scripture from this passage into our heart and that you would just stick it in our minds like a splinter and that we would ponder it and really think through it so that we're saved as believers from just kind of a ho-hum half awake Christmas. And for those of us who have not uh, trusted in you, that you would reveal yourself to them. 
Thank You for Your grace and Your goodness, God. Save us from a small and pitiful understanding of who You are. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Please stand with us if you're able and respond in that last song.